As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast, Game Relevant. That's right, folks, we're game relevant now because we're recording on a Monday after the football's happened and not before. Imagine that. A football podcast, game relevant. Uh, welcome to Alex Stewart. Uh, hi, Joe. How are you doing? Game relevant. And Seb Stafford Bloor. Hello, Joe Devine. Game relevant. Today, we're going to talk about uh, Newcastle, Southampton. We're going to talk about Manchester United, Everton, Wolves, Leicester, and of course, Liverpool, Man City. And we're not going to do the play by play of the other game relevant podcasts. No, no, no. Leave that good work to their fine hands. For us, we're going to talk about broad themes, but relate them to the games. Game relevant. Uh, And of course, before we get started, I would like to remind you that if you're into game-relevant topics and things such as the TFO Football Podcast, you might enjoy the game relevance of The Athletic, and because they're, you know, they're actually not that game-relevant, because most of what they do is a a longer read or a reflection, broad themes, much like the TFO Football Podcast. Um, But you know what? It's absolutely fantastic. Every morning on the Monday, I wake up and I read David Ornstein's column, and I learn more about what's happening in the world of football then than I do spending time with my colleagues Alex and Seb all week. Isn't that true, Alex and Seb? Sure is, Joe. Yep, totally. Yeah. Uh, So if you want to learn along with us about what's happening in the world of football, as well as following your club with in-depth and dedicated uh, football journalists, uh, then you should go to theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. That's theathletic.com forward slash TIFO for a deal that I believe is currently... Uh, available. It's a seven-day free trial. You don't even need to, I think, pay any money. So just go and look at it, and you've got seven days to do that, and then if you come back after seven days and you don't like it, just cancel it, and it's all fine. It might still actually count as some kind of sign-up uh, for me. <laughs> so even though you wouldn't be like a totally converted sign-up, you would count as a statistic, it's and you never really know, maybe I'll problem. get a raise. Is that yeah? I, who cares? I'm just a conduit <laughs> and a good one at that. Hey, the athletic. Thanks everyone there. Anyway, game relevant. Who's ready to be game relevant? I am. Alex. Uh, yeah. 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 yeah okay. Moderately, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Moderately. Yeah. All right. Oh, here we go. I leave you in the warm hands and the cool embrace of game relevance. Let's begin with Manchester City, who, of course, beat Liverpool 4-1 at Anfield uh, over the weekend. Football relevant. Um, Of course, the big talking point from this game was Phil Foden, who I rather embarrassingly text Alex to say at half-time, he's looking rather ineffective, isn't he, in that position? Didn't I, Alex? You did indeed, yes. Although you weren't wrong. He changed possession. Do you want to tell me why he wasn't? (laughs) That's true. He, I think um, I was reading Michael Cox this morning and uh, Michael Cox said that he played in four different positions. The thing is, you, you responded to me with a very fair point, which is to say, yes, everyone does. So, you know, don't pick on Phil Foden. And you were right, because in the second half, he really took the Graeme by the grasp of its neck. The Graeme he took. Yes, the, the Graeme 
became his. Um, yeah, I, he. I mean, City in the second half were far more fluid um, in a sort of front four with Bernardo Silva buzzing around into the wide areas, acting kind of as a 10 in a slightly De bruyne style. Foden was able to make these runs through, but he was positionally swapping, particularly on the left-hand side with Sterling. And it just... When you've got inexperienced centre-backs like Liverpool have, that kind of movement and rotation uh, makes it much harder for them to ignore their natural instinct to push forwards, which is a, as a midfielder is what you want to do. And that created gaps behind or put confusion into the minds of the centre-backs. And that's how they won the penalty in the first instance. But it's also some of the, the movement that then allowed Gundogan to make these late runs to score. Yeah, I mean, Seb, will you tell me a little bit about the way that he's been handled by Guardiola? Because it's, it's it's only his fifty ninth Premier League appearance since twenty seventeen. He's a, he's been a, a hot prospect for for some time. But um, the commentary team, you know, yesterday was describing this as perhaps the day that he's come of age. Uh, what do you make of all of it? Yeah, it's strange because he's. It feels like Phil Foden has been a, a topic for a really long time, and yet this was only, I think, his fifty ninth Premier League appearance. And he kind of became first team relevant in around 2017. So I remember that he, um, that was the year when uh, the under 17s won that that World Cup over in India and everybody went crazy for Phil Foden. It was really hard not to get excited about a player like that. He was kind of like this, this sort of, this generation's uh, more real and uh, more likely Jack Wilshire, basically. And we all wanted to see him. And there was this period of time where even in games where City were comfortably favoured, so they'd be at home to some sort of um, bottom-of-the-table dwelling side, you know, Foden would get like six and a half minutes at the end. And it was it was frustrating because you, you want to see a player like that. Um, but Guardiola's been proven correct on, on, on this because his game time is gradually increasing and has gradually increased over the last couple of years. And you guys were talking about sort of his first half performance. I feel like last season he would have been taken off. It would yeah. have been a kind of, okay, well, we've given the kid a go in a game of this caliber. Right, let's put on somebody else. Let's put on a... Well, there was a uh, moment you know, when, when Mares someone... came off, actually, and uh, was replaced by yeah. Gabriel Jesus with Foden moving out to the right. And I think, I think uh, certainly if it wasn't half time at that point, it would have been Foden coming off instead. I completely agree. And, it, and that, that felt like a really pivotal moment, not just in the game, but in his career. It was a sort of... I know we're probably guilty of overanalyzing these kind of things, but it felt like a no, you are now of sufficient influence to be too important to take off in this game. And also, you know, we're going to give you a little bit of license to be a bit crap for an hour on the basis that for the last half an hour, you might take over the game. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And he certainly did, didn't he? I mean, his his goal involvements were, were supreme, not to mention the the smash into the back of the net. Uh, of course, it was all helped by Alison having a bit of a brain melt. Alex, what did you make of this as a as an ex goalkeeper yourself? <laughs> um, I mean, it, yes, obviously there's a bit of a brain melt. The, the the clearances were poor. Partly, I think there was not as much movement from the centre backs uh, or uh, the left back uh, with one of those passes as you would like to try and give those options. It seemed like. No one noticed that there was a City player just kind of lurking there ready to intercept for the second one. Um, I guess once you've made the first mistake, you're probably maybe dwelling on that a little bit too much. And that makes a, a second mistake significantly more likely. I think also jumping ahead ever so slightly, that may have been an, uh, an issue with De Gea. Um, obviously, the second goal he sort of palmed weakly, and the third one he didn't come for nearly assertively enough. And I, I do wonder whether goalkeepers have that thing where if they've made an error, then that is too much of their thought process, and it's it can be very difficult to clear that out of the mind. Um, but Liverpool's yeah, defensive absolutely. movement didn't help either. I mean, it makes me feel rather comfortable, really, because uh, I mainly remember a time when Liverpool didn't have a very good goalkeeper or had a goalkeeper that was prone to making, you know, semi-regular mistakes. So I sort of, it sort of, I wore it like a warm blanket, is uh, is what I'll say. Um, it felt fairly significant as well for the reason that uh, of the the squad that City fielded at Anfield on Sunday, not a single player had won a game in that stadium. Um, and only Sergio Aguero had experienced being in the lead there at any point. That's a very significant thing to overturn. How much does that kind of thing matter, do you think, Seb? I was more surprised by the statistic, actually, Joe, because if you if you think about the players and teams that that encompasses, that's an amazing stat, The that 
all of those players have kind of melted away at Anfield. I think it's important because I, I think it's um, and actually we have a video that you could reference uh, for this, but it, Do we? it involves yeah yeah you know what I'm going to plug. No, and it's the self-efficacy video about Liverpool's comeback <gasps> in Istanbul. And it's about how if you have positive experiences in adverse situations, which this might have been because they, they missed that first half penalty. And any player in that side who had suffered the V at Anfield before uh, would probably have kind of their mind might have drifted to the same old place, especially after, let's be fair, Mohamed Salah went down kind of theatrically for Liverpool's penalty. You sure. were you were all over the WhatsApp chat after that. <laughs> you were furious. Well, I was because do you know, and uh, and producer Adonis, uh, he 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 pistol whipped me. Producer Adonis did, and he said, "Hey, he's got every right to go down there." I said, "Hey, producer Adonis, firstly, keep it zip, mate. This is for talent only. This WhatsApp chat. Second, uh, <laughs> that's not true. Second, it's not so much that he he he. Of course, he had the right to go down. That's the way that modern football works. It's the theatricality involved. It's the grimace, the cry of pain, the the contortion of the face. You know, I just I, it yeah. just makes me go, come on, man, just fall over for fuck's sake. There's no need to do the face thing, and that applies to to all all players who make the face. You know, just just don't make the face. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to take us thing. away from the face back to self-efficacy just because I feel that's a safer place to go. So basically the principle is that if you have if you have a, a positive memory that you can draw on in certain situations. So like you've if you're a forward you've scored a hat-trick on a, you know, on a certain pitch against a certain team, that is a positive experience which you can then draw on to instruct uh, something that's happening in your present or future. <laughs> this is like Harry Potter. <laughs> This is like when Harry Potter has to perform the Expecto Patronus job. As, as soon as, soon as Seb thing. started talking here, I th I was thinking this is something yeah. Joe is going to take in some random tangent now because it's just <laughs> not even that random. Though. Like that is Harry Potter. I know J.K. Rowling's a bit on the nose, and she calls like you know a ball that helps you remember a remember brawl or whatever. But uh, you know, uh, just just that just makes me think of Harry Potter. Anyway, I'm so sorry. Carry on. There, there's there's a theory in everything it's 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 you remember that rabbit hole i went down for like four days when i was writing that script yeah i do this is what happens when i'm given slightly abstract projects to do <laughs> well expelliarmus uh the other the only other thing i'd like to say about this game <laughs> is um is that i particularly enjoyed it because it was it was the penultimate game of the weekend and when a big game is the penultimate or, or the final game of the weekend uh it's not necessarily that it is improved in terms of uh you know results or goals or you know even individual moments but it really puts into context all the games that came before it, which we will come on to discuss, of course. Uh, the main thing I notice as a, as a sort of non-analyst uh, non is, uh, oh, God, they have a lot less time, don't they? And they have a lot less space. And I've spent the whole weekend sort of watching the teams thinking, why aren't they passing it through that sort of narrow corridor there? Sure, it's a narrow corridor, but I feel like that's what players in this league do. And they don't do it and they take a safer option. Or, you know, perhaps the players just don't, don't have that level of confidence or that level of skill. And even in the first half of uh, Manchester City, the, the Liverpool-Manchester City game, which was you know, a bit damp in most places, the amount of space and the amount of time that the players had uh, is so much less than that of almost every other game this weekend. that You, could, you just see that gulf in class. It's incredible to watch, isn't it? There's a, there's a point to be made here about like, the, the average pattern of most Premier League games, which is big team against weaker team. And build up starting under very little pressure amongst centre halves and fullbacks and deep midfielders, and then a kind of gradual build into a zone. Whereas this was kind of it's more frantic, isn't it? Everything is more congested, yeah. and it's much more back and forward. There's a challenge every stage of the game. Yeah, exactly. I thought in the first half, actually, City progressed the ball out of their half really, really well. Um, I, they they were lacking the right level of movement and focal point up front, which is why I think the Bernardo Silva Foden switch happened but Man City's technical ability to move the ball under pressure was remarkable uh, certain of the passes that they made particularly Gundogan was good at this I think um, just showed a level of technical excellence on, and you're absolutely right I mean it was it was a pretty frantic pace in terms of the pressing and I don't think Liverpool had that same degree as they usually do so irrespective of the fact that the first half didn't really see much in the way of end product. I, I was quite impressed with the way that City moved the ball forwards. 
as you should be. Um, I would say, I think, to, you know, around this bit off, this is a very significant result, not only for the sort of historical precedent for the players uh, of Manchester City, but also because it puts them 10 points ahead at Liverpool now. And, uh, you know, what what went from last week, I had a conversation with my granddad where we were talking about the, the madness of football. And uh, we said, oh, isn't it nice to not know who's going to win the Premier League this year? And he said, yes, it's very nice, isn't it, Joe? And I said, yes, granddad, thank you. I love you. And now I look like a fool. Uh, but we'll be back in a second to talk about uh, wet weather. Hmm, wet weather. Uh, Southampton, Newcastle, wet weather. Otherwise, the game known as the game of loans. Hmm? Someone might call it that. I have. Seb's That's left out clever. the pod plan, but I haven't forgotten about it, so I've put it back <laughs> in. That is my want. Uh, the reason I call it the game of loans is, of course, Joe Willock. Exciting. Uh, you know, Takumi Minamino. Exciting. Goals. Uh, but also wet weather. And, um, of course, the, you know, the, the main talking point from this game, really, is that uh, Newcastle went down to nine men and Southampton still didn't win the game. Uh, now, perhaps that is uh, because they're chastened from the 9-0 uh, the defeat to Manchester United. Perhaps that's because they're not very good. Not true. They are good. So maybe it's the water. Uh, I think I spoke to you, Alex, during the game and said it's looked like they've never played in the rain before. A little bit unfair, but would you explain what I meant? Yeah, I I mean it was it was pretty heavy, wasn't it, particularly in the second half. I think the problem that you have when you're uh playing against a team that's gone down to to 10 or uh later on to 9 is that what you need to do is to move that team around a lot. Uh and Newcastle it's the way they've been playing all season, like to sit back, like to condense particularly the center of the pitch. And as we did in our parking the bus video, one of the best ways to get around that is to move the ball from side to side, drag the team one way, drag them the other, and then look to create space that way. Of course, that's great if you've got good passes of the ball who can whip it around. But when the surface is as heavy as it is, Southampton was struggling to get any kind of momentum on the ball. Um, I mean, it was really, really holding up, uh, particularly in the middle third. Of course, Southampton Every are also... Every pass looked under hit, didn't it? massively under hit like it was bizarre and of course what that also does is it creates a situation where Newcastle are probably slightly more proactive in pressing the ball than they would otherwise be because they know that there's a good chance that the ball if it doesn't you know hold up entirely it will at least slow down also then in their mind Southampton players are thinking particularly if they're facing their own goal who's coming behind me this Ball, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pass the ball. It's not going to necessarily fly backwards. So there's a whole added level of pressure that comes from playing in conditions like that, which particularly don't suit a team that are trying to move the opposition around a lot when they're in quite a yeah. low block. Yeah, I, I think yeah, I think that's interesting. Well, listen, we'll come back to talk about how. Um how best to exploit numerical advantages because obviously it didn't quite work out for Southampton in this game. I want to spend a minute talking about Newcastle though, Seb, because they were really impressive. And of course, you know, aside from the two red cards and, you know, we've seen them defending in a low block quite a lot this season. That's not really what I'm referring to. But the way that they took their goals and created their chances is a little unlike the Newcastle sides that we've seen mostly so far this season. A big impact here, I think, was uh, was Joe Willock. And also Miguel Amaron had a fantastic game and Alan San Maximan started his first since November, I think. Um, so it all seemed to just come together for Steve Bruce's team on the day. Talk to me a little bit about Joe Willock because it feels like he could have quite an influence on this team. It does, doesn't it? I think we've, we've talked about this a few times, about how Newcastle, at their worst, have looked like 10 players in quite a deep position, 40 yards of nothingness, and then Callum Wilson running about by himself. And it feels like, although Joe Willock isn't like an outright attacking midfielder, he's not Meza Erzl, is he? But he's certainly someone that will go forward, and as such, feels like a, a nice little connecting piece. Uh, let's also mention Graham Jones because he came in to provide coaching support for Steve Bruce. Um, that's a much bigger topic and, you know, why a Premier League head coach needs to do that to kind of describe something less than ideal. But he's had an effect. Everything that Newcastle do at the moment feels a little bit more balanced. I think a lot of the flaws are still there. They're still not great defensively and they remain, regardless of what we're saying now, they remain a work in progress with the ball. Uh, but it's it's healthy and i know that the second goal for instance was a, a a big um a big deflection and the third one needed a um you know pretty bad error from ryan bertrand uh, to progress but it's better 
and Newcastle scoring three times at home feels like a real step in the right direction and they were better and Joe Willock feels like he's part of that and also I think one of the reasons why this loan move works Joe is that at Arsenal Joe Willock is a good player but his as a as a kind of a youth product his thunder was stolen a little bit by some of the better players there uh, Saka Martinelli um, these are they're players that are e- it's easier to get more excited by and as a result, Joe Willock is kind of, yeah, good player. He's kind of 7 out of 10, 8 out of 10. I think Newcastle's a really good opportunity for him to show that he belongs in a slightly higher category than that. Also, the, the most horrible thing about this game was the, the injury to, to Fabian Scher, who, I mean, smashed his knee against another player's body and it looked very swollen and horrible, Seb. It always reminds me of something very specific in my childhood. I was running through a playground and I came around a corner. And you know those... And you saw um, Fabian Scher big... with a swollen knee. Exactly. And it just it, it has haunted me for the last 30 years. Horrible. Good story. Yeah. Alternatively, I, I came around a corner. And you, know, you know those big sort of metal things that, um, that people used to chain bikes up to before they became Cranes, a bit neater and buildings, bit smaller? Um, uh, iron, yeah. iron blocks. Kind of looked like a mini climbing frame. Oh, yeah. Fence. Okay. Came running around, the, running around the corner and I hit my knee squarely on one of those. And it's just the most it's like it's about 90 seconds of agony until everything goes back to normal but it's a very very horrible 90 seconds it reminds me it's of that. It's the square and, uh, hit, isn't it? That's the thing. Because if you hit the side yeah. of your knee, you know, like it kind of, it feels like it shoots through and that's sort of okay mentalized. When you when it squares, it does oh, that thing it where it kind of goes in and body. out. It's and horrible. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, listen, uh, a speedy recovery to, to Fabian Scher. I hope, uh, I hope he's feeling better soon. And his knee isn't bothering his sleep, you know, because that would be bad. That would be a real shame. Uh, and of course, that he can come back and play football. Alex, when when you're facing a team of nine men and they're playing a one-four-four, the one being the goalkeeper, and I include the goalkeeper so that it doesn't sound as desperate as it did for Newcastle, how do you how do you win the game? Because Southampton didn't do that, and it felt <laughs> like they should have done. Oh uh, yeah, they really should have done. Um, uh, it, movement of the ball at speed um, and and. Ah. Tr- trying to create which is why I said this thing about about the pitch not helping but it also Southampton are probably not the best side at doing this because they tend to uh move the ball quite deep in order to switch it from side to side um the the verticality tends to come sort of in in the middle third of the pitch and then they like to pull it wide and have those runners coming inside and I I thought Nathan Redmond did okay in that regard um but they tactically they they're I think they're a team who haven't really uh created solutions to exactly that kind of problem um they're particularly bad at playing against a low block anyway because their ball progression it's too easy to kind of stop them up in the middle um and if you can then defend the wide spaces as well which is why they also sometimes don't do that well against teams that play five at the back then it's quite easy to thwart Southampton in that regard. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's uh, discuss instead 
uh, Manchester United and Everton. Now, because this was a very odd game, uh, it felt like at times Manchester United were running away with it. It also felt like at times they were giving the game away. I'm not sure if that's the, the right way of describing it. Uh, but uh, of course, we all know that Calvert-Lewin scored in the 95th minute to secure a 3-3 draw. The happiest party leaving the game, I would have thought, would be Abdoulaye Decoré, uh, because the commentary team bizarrely <laughs> referenced about four different times that he scored in two different defeats against Man United. And I kept thinking, why are they just saying this? <laughs> why have they come back to this? Is there nothing else to say about Abdoulaye Decoré other than he scored? Now they'll be saying he scored in two defeats and one draw with Manchester United. Fan- fabulous job. Well done there uh, to Abdoulaye Decoré, because that's, you know... That's the main thing. Um, it was a Pogba and McSauce midfield. Yeah, that was interesting too. Pogba, of course, was uh, substituted off before half time due to an injury. Uh, wish him all the best. Well, let's talk about Cavani also. Uh, but I would like to begin, of course, uh, by talking about substitutes because that's the low hanging fruit here, isn't it? We all know we're going to talk about it because uh, he was a substitute and then now he's making substitutions. And, you know, it's a <laughs> interesting stat. Manchester United have only used 24 players this season, which apparently is the smallest, I think, or the second smallest squad use in the whole league. Unusual for a for a wealthy team. Seb, pick something out of what I'm saying here. He just seems quite hesitant, Joe, both in the sense of when he makes his substitutions and the players he he uses and the types of players that he, he brings on. I think that's more interesting to me than the number of players because um, the number of substitutions, sorry, because you can spin that in either direction. You can talk about physical burdens being spread or you can talk about cohesion. I mean, there's, there's a lot of examples in either, either camp. But it just seems like he, he, he reminds me a little bit of Mauricio Pochettino. There's always, it always feels like he makes the substitutions 10 minutes too late and there's always a little bit of conservatism to it. It's, I don't know, like given the players at his disposal... Like, for instance, um, the weekend, like, really, you don't, I don't know, in that kind of situation, you don't want to use a, a like, a, a Van der Beek, for instance. Doesn't that make more sense, given the situation? I don't know. I don't know. I, I feel like defending uh, Solskjaer, because I, I think, well, I also feel like uh, Christian defending uh, Twan Zabi, poor tackle, an unfortunate foul to give away at the end. But I don't think, you know, there's, there's a lot of focus on, that uh, substitution taking place, you know, pretty pretty much right uh, towards the end of the game. Uh, he came on for, for Greenwood. Perhaps that was unnecessary. Um, but you would say that was unnecessary in a situation where the game was a stable point. And it certainly wasn't. Uh, because although Everton hadn't scored for a while, they had brought back two goals um, within the course of the second half. And the game, you know, felt not quite on a knife edge, but certainly not stable. I think that's the argument for saying that perhaps uh, substitutions could have been made earlier. I don't know. I, sp- I spoke to a um, friend of the podcast, Paul Ansorge, about this, and that was his take anyway, that, uh, you know, it was less about the specific uh, substitution towards the end and more about sort of what you're saying, perhaps, perhaps something could have been changed earlier. It's a difficult criticism to levy, though, because you don't know how games are going to go. There's also the opportunity, you know, option that you make those substitutions, you change the game state, and, you know, suddenly you're losing the game so I'm not sure there's a huge amount of evidence beyond this game put it that way I I have a bit of a weird theory which I'm going to air publicly and um, expose to ridicule but whenever I've been at Manchester United games uh, and that's not for a while at the moment but obviously sort of for about a year after Solskjaer was um, took charge it seems like they they make these decisions by committee so obviously Mike Phelan's involved Michael Carrick's involved um, seems like occasionally uh, Kieran McKenna gets involved there I wonder whether some of the delay is not based on trying to reach a consensus in that situation. It may be me reading something which isn't there, uh, interpreting something that isn't there, or or sort of uh, uh, imposing my prejudice against Solskjaer and his kind of um, slightly not he's not a dominant coaching figure, is he? And so I'm wondering whether I'm sort of interpreting something that um, doesn't really exist. But it does feel uh, as if there's that? just too much hesitation. I'm not sure that we can. I mean, are you, are you saying this based on you know? Uh, inference you've drawn from watching them talk to each other yeah hopeless bias absolutely but i all i'm saying is that he's not he's he's he's, he's hardly an autocrat is he um, how do you know no but i i i've 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 said that i don't know i'm making a massive assumption which i've chased to air on the pod i don't know have you ever seen a film about a cult you know where like the cult leader seems really nice and democratic but actually they're not have you seen the film The Beach, where you didn't think that, uh, you know, uh, Tilda Swinton had it in her, but she did, you know? 
I I'm always left with the feeling that you know when I when I've watched a, a, a film about cults or a documentary about cults, I've I've always been left with a kind of really didn't see it coming. Like if you <laughs> if you watch the Jonestown documentary, or you it's know the one about the, <laughs> but with just like you know I mean what what was the 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 sex cult one with the hugely creepy guy with the ponytail? You just think really you didn't 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 want to you want to place your entire faith in that guy? I mean. Sure. I don't know how we got here, but it's a it's a valid point to raise. What since well, we he, are? He, he was here. the manager of a of a Norwegian team, I think, and then he <laughs> used to play at the club. Uh, not absolutely not saying that Oli Solskjaer is the leader of a sex cult. By the way, that was just a, a, a hapless segue. Uh, Alex, tell me about Cavani though, because uh, you know we, we released a video uh, today as we we're recording. Cavani must start. He must start. He did start in this game. It's, it's clear that it's not just a Tifo that thinks this. It's, it's I think it's everyone in the world now uh, on the evidence of of recent games, and particularly the Everton game. You know, I know that the, the the result was a draw in the end, but there were moments in the first half when you know before before the first goal, which was actually scored by Cavani, Everton. One of the things they were doing well in the game was sort of closing down those uh, those opportunities for Rashford to, to run in from from the left and uh, Greenwood to run in from the right. Now there were runs that were made, there were successful dribbles, but it often felt like there was a real closing off of the space. And I think, you know, six months ago, if you'd had Anthony Martial in at the number nine position, you're thinking, right, this is going to be a tough game because there are very few opportunities here. You're expecting or half expecting a goal from somewhere else in the supporting attacking lineup. Maybe Bruno Fernandes to hit one from outside the box, not like he did, of course. Uh, but that Cavani was there and that uh, the fullbacks and the wide players could sort of lob crosses into the area, uh, that clearly started to cause the Everton defenders concern around 15-20 minutes because it was an alternative option that Manchester United just didn't have six months ago. It makes such a massive difference and of course it resulted in the first goal just after 20 minutes. Yeah, that, that to me that's, that's the key point is that Cavani is a focal point. Um, when you've got those uh, quick players running from the inside. Obviously, one of the things that they want to have is a passing or a crossing option centrally. But also, the fact that Cavani can move back toward the goal and can make the central defenders think about where he is as a more physical, more abrasive kind of old-fashioned centre-forward, who also has really, really good movement in the box. Um, I'm thinking back to the, the header he scored against Southampton, actually, where that little peeled run uh, around the back of a, a defender's blindside to to stoop down and head the ball oh, in was great. just classic predatory centre-forward play. And as soon as you have that, you know, with Manchester United being a counter-attacking team that like to run forwards with pace, the defenders aren't thinking, OK, well, I, you know, I, I just need to step up to this guy, block this runoff. There, there's also Cavani in the central areas creating that kind of confusion um and i also think he adds a lot with his pressing game i mean not you know Martial is is not a, a lethargic forward but cavani is a very disciplined and aggressive presser of the ball um and i just He's think scary he he is imagine, a bit scary like, the difference between being a defender and having yeah. cavani running at you with like screaming Versus Anthony Martial running at you, you know, not not to degrade uh, Martial, absolutely fantastic player, wonderful silky skill, but I feel like he'd be whispering at you if he was running towards you, and I feel like you know you thought if you could turn away from him once, he'd pro he might sort of give up a bit, you know, uh, and uh, whereas Cavani running up, be terrified. I'd want to walk around with a with a cricket bat to protect myself. Well, I'd probably uh, break <laughs> his back. <laughs> I think I think Martial is also somebody who benefits from from having space to run into himself, and it it felt like United's forward line, and that's perhaps why they excelled at a certain type of counter attacking for a while as well, was that all of those players wanted to do a similar kind of thing, and if they all managed to to get that thing together, then it was kind of bewildering for defences. But at the same time, that you know, if you're playing against three players that all want to do the same thing you can take certain strategies to mitigate that. All of a sudden, putting Cavani into that mix, United have two different ways of going forwards. Those crosses into the box have got a target. Um, I also think there's there's an intangible thing here, which is Cavani just has a huge amount of top-level experience. Um, yeah. You know, that, that, that forward line particularly with with Greenwood and, you know, if, if Martial at 24 is your oldest striker, then 
there's maybe it's lacking a little bit of that nous, a little bit of that um, wherewithal to to see out games or to to you know sniff out those little opportunities. It's kind of like what we were talking about with Liverpool uh-huh. and Man City, and Cavani has consistently been there and done that throughout his career, and I, I think that's quite a significant benefit for United as well. Well, here's a thought for you. Um, I think not only is the team better with Cavani in, and again, hate hate to do this to young Tony, great chap, fantastic footballer, but I also think one of the issues with Martial and Rashford playing alongside each other is that they often seek to run into the same space, right? It dep- depending on who picks up the ball where, there's this kind of area of space in the left-hand side channel that both of those players naturally want to drift into. And they can't always do that. They often end up getting a little bit in each other's way. They do have, you know, the ability to 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 knock the ball around to each other and work around each other because they've played together for a long time. But I actually think having Cavani as that focal point in the centre, uh, Rashford learning and, and and starting to know where he's going to be uh, at any given time and knowing that that space is probably going to be available for him, I think it makes Rashford a better player over time. I think it gives him experience of games where he commands that area. He knows it's his, and he, you know, I think we saw in this Everton game, his dribbling has just come on leaps and bounds in the last year, and he started as a superb dribbler. I honestly think Rashford could end his career as one of the best dribblers in the world. And Greenwood on the right-hand side, uh, you can see Cavani throughout the game sort of shouting at him, not in an aggressive way, but in a kind of, uh, you know, an, an educating way. You can see him telling him when to loft the ball in. You can see him telling him when to come. Cavani runs to make space for Greenwood when he knows he's going to shoot. I think Greenwood, who potentially could end up as a nine in his career, learning from uh, Cavani at this point, it, feel, it just feels like the perfect balance for me. Uh, I don't know what you think about that, Seb. Yeah, another thing I really like about it is I wonder if you're a centre-half, I wonder what the experience of playing against Cavani is like. I, I've always thought that I agree about Martial, like uh, his traits are slightly more predictable. I've also started to notice how often he receives the ball at, at a standstill. Like he just waits for the ball to arrive at him I mean, outside of counter-attacking opportunities, which I, I think makes him easier to defend against. Whereas Cavani, Cavani never seems to stop moving. Uh, aside from that kind of cricket bat thing, which made me think of, Spinal Taps manager earlier. Um, sure. I drifted off into a kind of, yeah. Um, <laughs> I wonder whether like the increased tension that you feel as a defender, uh, it's quite unsettling. I think it, you need a, a little bit of a, an academic study to work that out. But it feels like the, the general level of, of flux and disorientation that a Cavani type would create is to the benefit of players like Rashford and Greenwood around them and probably mm. a kind of a Bruno Fernandes behind. I, I think you can look at, uh, I would suggest Vardy having a similar effect for Leicester where you've also got mobile wide players that like to run inside you've got a 10 that's capable of making runs into the box from deep or creating shooting opportunities from outside and then as a focal point you've got a striker who is constantly moving who has that ability to make even the smallest step effective by getting him away from a defender and and that means defenders have got to be aware of so much more than they would if you weren't playing against a center forward of that caliber and I think I think it suits both of those teams immensely to have that kind of player up front. It also left me thinking Seb that uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin would actually be a good Manchester United striker after Cavani leaves right? Yeah I mean I don't think that's even arguable. Dominic Calvert-Lewin just in terms of everything he does like we know we've we've talked about his skill set before, but like the personality is quite similar as well, which is or could be in the future. It's really interesting. He's such a good yeah, footballer. Yeah. Seventeen goals. Yeah, it really is. He really yeah. is. He really is. Um, also, Bruno Fernandez scored a fucking amazing goal, didn't he? So uh, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> so but, um, good. Uh, I appreciate that we've just spent uh, quite a lot of this time talking about uh, how good United's attacking line is. Of course, they didn't win the game. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if it is worth spending a little bit of time talking about Everton um, because, as we say, uh, Calvert-Lewin, again, proved himself to be a difficult opponent. uh, And James Rodriguez uh, scored a goal, made a goal. I mean, his uh, his goal involvements have been fantastic so far this season. He's He's a great player, Seb. I love the crispness of that half volley. Of, it, of the, the equaliser, it's just it's just such a neat little passage. It's so it's so quick and precise and clever. It's just fun to watch. And speaking about players with experience, you know, we could include him in that. Um, Alex, I really like the way that Carlo Ancelotti has fit him into this system too, because we were all, I suppose, kind of expecting him to feature more 
centrally when he arrived. And actually, he's been playing on the right of that forward three uh, to great effect. Yeah, I, I think it's it's one of those things where what a player does is not necessarily determined by where they start on the pitch. Um, and what he's able to do is whether he's playing... I mean, he was sort of slightly at the tip of a diamond in this game, but when he's playing on the right-hand side as well, he'll still drift in and find those spaces. And I think what was particularly nice with the way that Everton set up in this game was they allowed Richarlison to have that sort of free roll on the left-hand side. Um, And so it created this tilting thing where Richarlison was able to make quite deep runs on the left-hand side. Hamas Rodriguez could either drift out right or occupy a central space, and then Calvert-Lewin was the focal point. And I think that unbalanced thing created a, a situation for United's defenders where they weren't quite sure where the threat was going to come from. And once Everton started finding Richarlison in that left-hand space, particularly through Rodriguez getting the ball to him, but also from deeper, um, then Everton were able to attack United in, in a much more cohesive way. Um, but he just, yeah, I mean, Rodriguez is just one of those players that can execute things that, that other players can't even see, let alone do. Yeah, well, you know, GG's to all involved. Uh, we'll be back in a minute to talk about Wolves, Leicester, and some fun stuff. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, Wolves and Leicester. A couple of talking points here. Uh, Of course, Leicester held to a nil-nil draw. Will they lose the title now? I don't care. William Jose, uh, or William (laughs) Jose, I think he's Brazilian, isn't he? William Jose, uh, he's a new striker that Wolves have brought in. Of course, uh, Ralph Jimenez is still out suffering from that awful injury. Um, And they really needed, uh, they really needed a striker, didn't they? They really needed a striker. Uh, who wants to talk about this striker? Because he scored a lot of goals in La Liga, from what I have read. He he has scored a lot of goals in La Liga. He he got double figures in his last four full seasons for Real Sociedad. Um, he seems like a like, much... Do you know what they call that, Alex? They call that a hot dog player. Yeah, They, they call him William Hot Dog Jose, because of the number of goals he scored makes people want to say hot dog. Okay, yeah. Um, I guess <laughs> it's, it's not not much I can do with that. Um, he seems like a much more natural fit for um, for Wolves' style in that he's able to drop off, he's able to to collect the ball. He's quite a big guy; he's like six foot one, six foot two. Takes the ball well under pressure and then sprays it out to those quick, tricky, wide players that Wolves has. He then has the pace to get forward. So I think he's able to mimic what Raul Jimenez offered in build-up significantly more than than maybe Fabio Silva did. What's quite interesting as well is that I think he's adapting quite nicely to that style. At Sociedad, he was much more of a, a close focal point. So Sociedad had a, a more uh, structured style of build-up with lots of shorter passes. And he was expected to, to very much just be in the six-yard box to get on the end of clever balls, particularly from the wide players. So he's he's adapting well, which I think shows good intelligence, and and he looks like a good signing for them. I have to say, I I didn't really know anything about him before he came to the Premier League. He's kind of, despite that good scoring record, he he was slightly off the radar for me, um, but I've been impressed. Well, let's see how he does. Um, there's another player I'd like you to talk about, Seb, and that is the player Pedro Neto, who, of course, you know, without Jimenez and, and Jota, has clearly been Wolves' most dangerous attacking player. And he looks like Rob Stark. <laughs> yes, he does. He's also fun to watch. I think um, he's the quite old-fashioned, isn't he? Yeah, young wolf. I, I, last season, I suppose 
his place in the kind of in the conversation was as the unluckiest player in the whole of football because everything he seemed to do well at least was ruled out by VAR for about six months he has that quality that Gareth Bell used to have which is he's able to sustain his acceleration over long distances which you know alongside things like skill and the ability to finish and um he's nice cross with the ball just makes him incredibly watchable also, for a team who, at the moment, um, are having to go south to north as quickly as possible, they don't, they're not building attacking moves that well, or at least they weren't until William Jose turned up. He's very useful because he can, um, he can take advantage of space and numerical mismatches. You could see him turning into a really, really good player. As and when Wolves... If, yeah. if the Wolves are returned to their kind of Raul Jimenez best and they replace... Diogo Yota in their system or if they can keep Daniel Podence fit you can see him becoming really productive in the future absolutely he, I think the key is that he is just fun to watch I mean he made so many dribbles in this game um, with lesser he, he ran Ricardo inside out for that whole first half and it looked like obviously if there was going to be a goal it was going to come from this left hand side uh, but he just looked like he was having fun. It was quite exciting. Whenever he got the ball, I was sort of hoping that something would happen. He looks like Rob Stark, and that makes me feel good. And uh, he's the young wolf, you know, so hopefully he can uh, be good. As we know from the future, looking into the future, that skill that you've described of acceleration over long periods of time, that really disappears <laughs> the older you get. So yeah, it doesn't, you know, doesn't the best hang about for very long, I don't think. <laughs> yeah. Heed the words of Gareth Bale, Pedro Neto, young wolf. Uh, you know, fair fortune. So, uh, very pleased to welcome uh, Cy Sports' Reese Chambers uh, to the pod. Reese is a football recruitment consultant for Cy Sports, which is a very, very smart data company based in the Netherlands um, that helps football clubs with uh, recruitment, profiling of players, and so on. Um, we're going to talk a little bit here about what is called GBE, uh, which stands for Governing Body Endorsement. It's a post-Brexit issue that uh, is now applied to UK football clubs by the FA. It's basically a series of criteria um, that will determine whether or not uh, a player can be signed by a club um, or, or registered for a club. So it'll be things like senior international appearances, domestic league minutes and so on. Uh, so Reese is going to talk us through uh, some of the uh, impact that this will have on clubs. We'll take a look at some examples uh, and and basically me work out what it means for for the future of recruitment for British clubs. So Reese, welcome to the pod. Yeah, thank you for having me, Alex. Good to uh, good to join you. So um, this uh, GBE, obviously, it, it's a, it's a post Brexit thing, and it's it's here to add, uh, I don't want to say a level of difficulty, but it's certainly going to focus the way that, that clubs work on their recruitment. So can you just talk me first through what kind of an impact it's going to have on on the sorts of moves that British clubs can make? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you're definitely right there. It does add an extra obstacle on, a, on top of an already complicated sort of market at the moment with coronavirus, obviously. But for Clubs in England, especially Premier League clubs, I think it will um, change the way they do their recruitment. So going to different markets, definitely um, we will see. And I think, yeah, it's already been touted quite a lot in the media that that will happen, that maybe clubs will go to South America more than they've been to cheaper markets in Europe. Um, but I think the intuition behind it from the FA's point of view, at least, is to give more of a chance to domestic players within academy structures and things like that whether that happens or not is um yeah remains to be seen over time but yeah in general i think it's meant to increase the the caliber of player coming over to the uk which makes sense i think considering the number of younger players especially from overseas that have come over and maybe not reach the standards that they should have so i think from that point of view it should be a positive thing for the english game um but yeah as you say it will definitely create and already has created obstacles for clubs um, from a recruitment point of view for sure. So Cy Sports has created a points calculator um, which is a way of working out whether or not a player is likely to be eligible. Can you just walk me through the, the basic criteria that, that crop up in that calculator, the sorts of things that clubs are going to have to pay attention to now? So the FA released a very lengthy um, document uh, 
towards the end of last year actually detailing the regulations that would be put into place. Um, so from yeah, a club's perspective, the main things they'll be looking at are the the league quality of the current club, um, international appearances, both senior and youth, um, things like that, and also continental progression of clubs, both yeah in the in Europe and also South America across the world as well. So um, there are plenty of things they need to consider. Um, so from our point of view, developing a model, it's been a fairly um, yeah, a tough process to do because they're, they're brand, brand new regulations to put in place. But from what we've done and from having looked through the FA's document and spoken to clubs, um, yeah, we think it's something that will be very useful. So in terms of, of, of clubs, let's look at the Premier League, for example. If you're Manchester United or you're Manchester City or you're Arsenal, there's a very strong possibility that the sorts of players that you're looking at, even if they're towards the younger end of the spectrum, would still be eligible under these criteria because you're you're generally speaking recruiting from top five European leagues. You're looking to buy players that are already comfortable with with continental football and so on. Is this really going to have much more of an impact on lower Premier League clubs, Championship clubs, or will there also be subtle adjustments to the way the bigger clubs have to recruit? Yeah, I think you're definitely right there. I think on the whole, it will affect yeah clubs in the lower half of the Premier League that perhaps need to go to cheaper markets and have done traditionally. Um, they are less feasible now. Um, same for championship clubs as well. They tend to do a lot of their shopping in Bundesliga 2, leagues like that, that players aren't going to straightforward pass. It doesn't mean they won't pass in some cases. Um, but on the whole, yeah, as you say, the top, Definitely the traditional top six of the Premier League probably will be largely unaffected, but on a more subtle level, um, yeah, the changes do mean that they probably will um, have some issues with signing players younger um, and getting there before European clubs. So maybe it does give European clubs a bit of an edge. So I know Fabregas was, uh, has been cited quite a lot from his move to Arsenal back in 2003, I think it was. Um so those moves are less likely, especially considering you can't sign under 18s. But on the whole, yeah, I don't think there's going to be the wide-sweeping wide impact that we've seen um, lower down the division, that's for sure. Is there a possibility that this is just going to entrench the positions of the top clubs, the ones that can straight away, A, afford to to pick up a player who may only be 19 or 20 but is still getting regular minutes in a top European league or a top South American league, but also have the the financial clout both to run a really, really strong academy and also poach younger academy players from smaller clubs. It, it seems like this is an opportunity that those really established clubs have to, to kind of put the squeeze on everybody else, both in the domestic market and the foreign market. Yeah, 100%. And I think one of the main things looking at it from a, a theoretical point of view is that it does make it more competitive. Um, and when you have a more competitive market, the people who come off better are the people that can um, afford more. So I do think you're right there. Um, but in general, I think, especially within recruitment and what we found as a company is the more clubs are receptive to innovation and to creativity in their recruitment processes, the more they'll get out of the resources they have. So every club has their own internal uh, restrictions or battles, so to say. So I, I wouldn't say it's a negative thing across the board, but yeah, you're definitely right in terms of the top, top clubs um, maybe getting a bit more of an edge. But yeah, who knows how they'll react to it. I think um, only time will tell with that. So recruitment is is one of the areas where, where data in football has had a real impact. And obviously this is the kind of the money ball effect, quote unquote, where people are looking for you know, undiscovered gems for metrics that might correlate to success uh, in a way that the rest of the market hasn't recognised and so on. What are the sorts of strategies that clubs can look to use? I, I, I very, very briefly reference, for example, buying to loan, but are we going to see people pushing into markets where maybe that wasn't the case previously? people buying players with a view to sending them somewhere else what what sorts of approaches will clubs likely take yeah it's a good question and I think um yeah I don't want to totally unavoid it but the it, it takes time with recruitment and I think with um COVID having come as well at the same time 
it's I think it's at the moment hard to decipher what's COVID and what's GBE because when you have two very big things coming at the same time, perhaps it's hard to yeah decipher between the two. But in general, I would say um, groups of clubs will become more important. So we've obviously got City Football Group, other clubs at the top, um, establishing partnerships in Europe and elsewhere as well around the globe that will become important to perhaps um, drawing up a career pathway for a player. So if they find a player who's, I don't know, 17 or 18 in a in a market that they can um, bring him over GBE-wise, possibly they'll, they'll decide to loan him out to that club where he then might earn the points eventually. So I think it, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, it does really bring on innovation and creativity. So from that perspective, I think it'll be interesting to see what clubs have to do. Um, but yeah, there are a few loopholes and clubs will always find um, loopholes around things and maybe loopholes isn't even the right word because they're playing by the book still. They're just um, being strategic, which obviously within such competitive markets is something that um, should be very, um, very encouraged, I would say, to try and get that edge. You mentioned Bundesliga 2 previously. Obviously, there were, there were some players that came over to clubs like Norwich and, and did well. From there, um, I'm also thinking of West Ham recently recruiting um, Sushek and Kufal um, from the Czech top division. What are the leagues that we should be looking at now, maybe, that we previously hadn't paid that much attention to on the basis that it's likely that players from those leagues would qualify? Um, in terms of looking at specific leagues, I would say the Moises Caicedo deal from Independiente in South America is pretty much the the tipping point, the example that um, clubs really expect, or the media, I would say, expected um, for clubs to go over to South America where players are earning points not only through their league but also through the Copa Libertadores, Copa Sudamericana. So those leagues are very important for that. And I think the the talent over there, obviously, is a very big positive. Um, yeah, whether that means European markets are less viable or less sought after, um, again, it remains to be seen, but in general, I would say there has been some shift towards South America right now, um, whether that just makes everybody flock over to South America and then the competition over there is just as hard, I'm not sure, but I would say that looking at it on paper, heading over to South America is not only a GBE thing, but also it's a cheaper market as well in some places, so that could be a positive that clubs look at. Talking of South America, obviously Manchester United recently signed Facundo Palestri from uh, Peñarol. They also picked up Ahmed Diallo, um, who was playing in Serie A for Atlanta. Would both of those deals likely have gone through under the, the new set of rules? Yeah, I, I, with Diallo, I don't think there's any question around that because, yeah, as you mentioned, he'd been playing in a top European league. So I think... In terms of that, he would have been fine. Palestri is another one who's more interesting, um, especially, as I just mentioned, coming from South America as well. Um, it could be on the periphery, to be honest, and that's something around the GBE that when we're speaking to clubs, we do make quite clear is that the FA have set their stall out in terms of the regulations, but there's also an appeals process that clubs can go through. So in terms of that, if they do, for example, if a player has... 10 points or four, up to 14 points, they can appeal that. So in the case of Palestri, I'd say he probably would have fallen within that bracket. And then, of course, you have the fact that he's a very talented young player. So I don't think there would have been any issues eventually. But of course, as we mentioned at the beginning, it's another obstacle for the for the clubs especially to deal with. And it's not a cheap thing either. It takes time. And as everybody knows, um, time is a very uh, valuable commodity within the transfer market. Yeah, I suppose particularly because with the the easier access to data and, and video scouting now, there isn't really a part of the world that is more hidden than, than any other. I think that's one of the, the biggest changes that we've seen. Um, so just before we go, um, I suppose uh, th- my final question to you would be, do you think when we look at this in five years' time, we're going to see a lot more young English players coming up through the ranks and, and progressing into the first team in, in lower ranking clubs? Or is this one of these things that, you know, there'll be an adaptation period, of course, but actually the landscape isn't going to change too much over over the longer term? 
I think in general it should help the chances of players being able to come through an academy, whether that transpires into regular first team minutes and you know eventually strengthening the national team. Um, I'm not 100% sure on that. I would say that it is a positive thing on paper for English clubs, but as we've mentioned, clubs are very strategic in the way they go about um, recruitment. And that's obviously a positive because they get the most value out of the money that they have and the resources they have at hand. Um, I think probably a lot of it is down to managerial situations as well, whether managers are open to, um, yeah, let's say, promoting players from the youth team and the youth setup. I think further down the chain, it's a, it's a big positive for younger players in England especially. Um, but whether we see more English players coming into the um, Premier League and the national setup at a higher level, I'm not 100% sure, but I'd say in general it's a good thing. Um, but yeah, as we say, uh, we'll see when uh, when the time comes around in five years and yeah, we'll see where we are then. I'm sure the game will be a different place by then, but hopefully a positive one for, for English clubs. Well, it's definitely going to have a, an impact in, in some regard, at least in the short term. So thank you very much, Rhys, for, for coming on and walking us through uh, this complicated <laughs> new element to Brexit because we needed another one of those. Um, thanks very much and uh, we'll catch up with you again soon, I'm sure. Yeah, thank you very much, guys. Uh, we're coming to the end of the podcast now, but but I've got this thing, gang. I've got this cool thing. I thought of it over the weekend. I did it over the weekend, okay? What I did was, uh, well, first I'll welcome you to Joe's Quotes and Facts Database. <laughs> It's Joe's Quotes and Facts Database. Yeah, very exciting. We're all excited to be here. Uh, I did this over the weekend. I thought, wouldn't it be good if for every player in the Premier League, I had a fact and a quote? And so I did it over the weekend. I made a spreadsheet for every player in the Premier League. I didn't do that because that was going to take a really, really long time. So what I did was I made a quote and a fact for every player that plays as a defender or goalkeeper for the senior team of Arsenal. And that's what I did. Uh, but uh, I'm going to finish it. I'm going to finish I promise I'm going to finish it over the season, over the course of the season in my spare time so that whenever we bring up a player like, uh, you know, William Jose or Pedro Neto, I can say, oh, did you know? Did you know? I can't do that at the moment because I thought I'm, I was too ambitious. I started alphabetically and I started with a team that I didn't, didn't watch this weekend and so I haven't featured the conversation. Hang, hang on, hang on. I'm, I'm going to rein you in there. So this thing that you told me to put on the on the pod plan but refused to tell me anything about, you're, the, the, the segment is you're telling us about a secret project that's happening in the background. No, no, no. Going to I'm going to invite you now. It in the podcast I'm going to invite right, you now okay. to ask me about any defender or goal, and that includes the second and third goalkeepers uh, th that play for Arsenal. And I'll tell you a fact about them and a quote that they've said. So, Seb, I'll, I'll ask you first. And bear in mind, don't pick a big player because they're more likely to come up in the future. And I want to get maximum value out of this because it's, it's literally going to take me months. Uh, so pick a player that's unlikely to come up again. Rob Holding. Okay, well, that's very rude to Rob Holding. I feel like he probably is going to stay up uh, uh, in a conversation. But here, here we go anyway. Rob Holding. Uh, Holding is backpacked around Thailand, staying in five pound per night hostels with his friends. That's a fact about Rob Holding. And uh, a, a quote <laughs> from Rob Holding here. A little quote from Rob Holding. Rain or shine, still having a great time. That's a is quote that from, from his Rob Instagram. Holding. From uh, his Instagram? Uh, yeah, maybe. I can't remember. Uh, Alex, do you want to pick a player? Runa Runason. Yes, I'm glad you picked uh, Runa nice. Alex nice. Runason. Uh, yeah. So uh, Runa Alex is the son of uh, Runa Christensen, a former professional footballer who is the only Icelander to have had more than 100 caps for the senior national team. Did you know that? Uh, I, I did, actually. Yeah, oh. sorry. Well, okay. Well, you can't win them all, can you? And, uh, you know, Runa's quote is, football would be no fun without having this type of pressure. So it will be a challenge, but I'm up for it. What, what type of pressure is he referring to? Don't know, mate. No idea. Can't, that sounds can't very remember. much like he's been called into the team ahead of quite a big game because <laughs> of the suspension. That's, that's that quote. Okay, um, that feels very situation Oh, I should have gone for Matt Macy, actually. Listen, Adonis, the producer Adonis is, a, is an Arsenal fan, so I'm going to invite him to unmute himself and ask for a player if he wishes. Ask, ask for Pablo Mari, please. 
<laughs> uh, Pablo Mari. Oh, thanks. Uh, Mari uh, once grew 10 to 12 centimetres in one summer as a child, and this actually caused him uh, really early injury issues. Did, did, you, did you know that, everyone? No. See, this is a useful thing, isn't it? And the quote from Pablo Mari... This is a nice little facility. It is. This is the quote from Pablo Mari. Pablo Mari said, The bones in my hips grew so quickly that they weren't really bone. They were just (laughs) cartilage. So every time I tried to play football, I'd get injured. That sounds horrible. Yeah, like it's not funny. That sounds terrible. It's, It's just not funny because obviously it's... He's a professional footballer now, you know, he's, he, he made it, but uh, fuck me, against all the odds, clearly. Cause the that is, uh, that's an amazing recovery. <laughs> Who grows 12 centimetres in one summer? <laughs> Which summer that's was like, it? I don't know. Like he how said old when he was, was he? 10 or 12, that's what he did, oh. I remember. Um, but you can see this is going to be a real asset to the podcast, guys. It's going to be a really asset um, because I know so much about uh, Arsenal goalkeepers and defenders now. If there was a hypothetical situation in which a uh, conversation that begun in this segment could be supplemented by something that I know, which was related, could I add it in, or is that absolutely not? Yeah. No, this isn't a place for your okay. thoughts. <laughs> this isn't for your facts, Seb. We don't want good football facts in here. You probably could though. For this me, is uh, just a place for you. It's just to a place laugh for medical misfortune. My facts aren't important. My facts are that Bernd Leno was a Roman Catholic and once met the Pope at the Vatican. You know. And speaking I, of I feel... his childhood, he said, back then, every toy was football. I think he meant was a football, but I have directly quoted. There, there seems like quite a disparity between the Rob Holding information and, and the other guys. Did was, you know was... that Hector Bayerin is the creative director of EA Sports FIFA's Volta Mode? Yes. Okay, well, you know. Well, he's, like, it's, it's a sort of... You know, Instagram Mundial Merck thing, isn't it? It's yeah. people talk about that. He has that photo shoot where he's in his back garden looking urbane. Yeah, sure. He well, should you probably know, spend listen, more time on foul throws. Maybe he should. Uh, one more because I'm getting carried away. Callum Chambers. Callum Chambers fact: just one L in the name. That's the fact. <laughs> and the uh, the quote learnt that by typing it in. And the quote is. I'm just trying to get through different phases in different blocks as and when I can. So that's the that's the quote. Um, but I hope we've all enjoyed uh, Joe's player quotes and facts list. It's Joe's quotes and facts database. And there'll be more. Well, anyway, that's the TIFO podcast. Thanks so much for uh, sticking around till the bitter end with us. Uh, we'll be back. Oh, we're, we're game relevant. We're game relevant now. And we'll be back on... Friday of this week, also game relevant. So uh, buckle those seatbelts in, brace for impact, and uh, you know whiplash will be maximum, but your but the uh, the the body will remain intact. Yeah. Thanks, Seb. Thanks, Joe. Thanks to you, Alex. Thanks, Joe. Many thanks as always to uh, producer Adonis, and we will be back. Uh, yeah, on Friday. Uh, au revoir. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.